And you have been listening to Chris for the last two hours with Great Voices. And now it's two hours with me, Jan Bartlett, until six tonight. Today, report on events affecting the people of occupied Western Sahara and surprising how many things are actually happening that we never hear anything about here in Australia, except for places like 3CR. I'll be speaking with Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. An interview with Kim McGrath, author of Crossing the Line, Australia's Secret History in the Timor Sea. Lots of dirty deals and dirtier and people doing those deals to steal the oil of and the gas of some of the poorest countries, country, people in the world. That's Kim McGrath. Why Venezuela has gone from the front pages, or some looking at some reasons why. I'll be speaking with Fred Fuentes, author, activist and journalist. But first, we'll see what Mr Kevin Healy has to say, and I bet Barney is up there somewhere. A week, Jane, listener, when, remember last week we begged their honours to keep God's gift of satire in his place with Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo and Deputy Big Supremo Barnacle and Barnacle's next in line, Fiona Smash Greenies, and it seems half the Parliament heading to the High Court and speculated it's possible the only people eligible to be in Parliament could be the Terranullius non-people, but that seeing they are Terranullius and can't produce any pre-1788 legal papers or land titles to prove who they are or that they own what they selfishly claim they own, then no one might be eligible to be a parliamentarian and so we'll face a constitutional crisis where there'll be no parliament. It's too awful to contemplate, we said. Like... Who would obey U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, and increase our invasion of Afghanistan? Mission accomplished, taking a little while to mop up, both in then-evil, now-good Iraq, where it applied at the time, and Afghanistan, where liberation, liberty, freedom and democracy are always just a few thousand more train killers away. But surely another 16 years and they should have learned all there is to learn about liberty, freedom and democracy or just not exist. Which is probably better because it would bring the war to a more definitive end. Every time we say it's ended, they keep popping up. And thanks to Donald, our big supremo Malcolm Tunnabull has now declared war on Pakistan. Perhaps cricket balls at 22 paces. But then the escalating US of invasion of Pakistan has been droning on for years. The buzz of terror followed by summary execution. And what's it matter? They're all terrorists or wedding parties, same thing. And the train killer executioners in Washington and their hench people in our very own euphemistically named Pine Gap. Well, not quite our very own. It is technically US of territory, but we're locked together. Malcolm said if the US of was invaded, we'd be off to defend it. And the US of must feel so comforted by that thought. True Blue Aussie will come to our rescue. Who? True Blue Aussie. Who the hell's True Blue Aussie? 
Washington and Pine Gap know Pakistani wedding parties are the biggest threat there is to world peace. So without a government, who's going to make those decisions in the cause of peace? The if-only department, that stampede to the High Court. Barnacle said this week, I'm not going to do anything until the High Court decision. But before we cheer and say, that's a positive, let's keep adjourning the case, he meant not do anything about removing himself from the plush seats. If only... Remember after we liberated evil Iraq from that damn Hussein and his arsenal of weapons of mass destruction threatening all who love peace across the whole world, particularly the coalition of the killing whole world, how we all celebrated that famous scene of the liberated tearing down the statue of that damn Hussein, a tight shot ensuring we couldn't see the thousands of the liberated we were told were involved. Pity we only saw about a half dozen of these happy people and our great coalition of the killing leaders cheered and applauded the tearing down a symbol of their newfound freedom like our media and great leaders also so celebrated the tearing down of Lenin's statue in Crimea for instance the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in the dark ages of the coalition of the killing it is important to uh, tear down symbols that uh, remind people of an, uh, an evil past. It, it really is. And the parliament behind him all nodded agreement. So isn't it good that there is a movement to remove the reminders of the evil past experienced by our terrenalist non-people? This is a disgrace. Political correctness gone mad. We must respect our history. We can't erase history. How dare the Terranilius non-people suggest Captain Cook, for example, didn't discover True Blue Aussie. Haven't they read our history books? What evil aberration would drive people to vandalise great monuments when they can express their misplaced misgivings, a rational dissatisfaction, by contacting their local MP and or through the ballot box? displaying the vandalism, a further slap in the face to history, to the monumental gift of democracy we bestowed on them. Worse, there are misguided, non-terrenalist non-people, here thanks to Arthur Phillip and the original No Proper Papers queue-jumping illegal boat people, whose support may even participate in the vandalism of our great historical symbols, the great men who civilised and Christianised this country. Although there are boat people who shouldn't come here who are a threat to civilization and Christianity. Introduced species posing a threat to we indigenous whites. And thank goodness we've got the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats and Keeping Us Secure, Peter Duffer, to put them in their place. An introduced species eradication program, destroy their food source, starve them to death or remove their emaciated bodies to a place where they'll also be an introduced species but a far, far, far less threatening introduced species among people who are themselves almost Terranilius non-people. Win-win. Thank goodness Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo little Billy Short and Ambition introduced a touch of humanity and compassion. This shows how weak Malcolm is. Look, 
the Socialist Party is as cruel as the caring business class party. But we would show cruelty with compassion. Cruelty with compassion by sending the introduced species to a third place further away. Weak, Malcolm, weak. Oh, it does us good to know there's still compassion out there and such hope for the introduced species. Also, win-win, as we mentioned last week, how a man who deserves his own statue, Twitty Dig Up Forests, won a long-running high court case to prevent a mining company coming onto his cattle property. As Twitty said, he supports the right of his mining company to take the takeover of other people's land. That's right, other people's. Even better news this week, Twitty's mining interests, for us not you minerals, announced another record profit from taking what is on those other people's land. While our national mining icon, the big true blue Aussie, bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, BHP, announced a six-fold increase in profits and on other people's land, through all the reports and comments on this exciting achievement, not one mention. Not a word about that little mishap in Brazil, which wiped out a few villages on its way to polluting the ocean and in turn wiping out the local people's livelihoods. Showing, good news, good news, the accident... Okay, okay, they had been warned for years the avalanche of toxicity was inevitable unless they spent a bit to ensure it couldn't happen, but how, how can you announce a six-fold profit increase if you waste money on something that's inevitable? But as I say, good news, because obviously allowing the accident to happen has proven much more economically responsible, sensible, than preventing it from happening. A mere blip on bloody huge polluters' international bottom line, not even worth mentioning. Nothing to worry about. And we haven't had the chance to ask the villagers who copped the toxic avalanche whether they too have nothing to worry about, but they can enjoy the satisfaction of knowing their little sacrifice has made a contribution to the big true blue Aussie's huge profit, and they'll benefit from the trickle-down effect, as long as they don't complain too much about the avalanche-down effect. After all, the avalanche is way down the list now of natural and or man-made tragedies and can be safely forgotten. And we can be sure the big true blue Aussie is doing all it can to help them. On environmental disasters, the pejorative Dan State Government also came under justified criticism from the Federal Minister for Fossils, Josh Friedem Icebergs, for attacking the environment by outrageously making a decision, specifically setting a renewable energy target for Victoria when, as Friedem Icebergs pointed out, the states must agree not to agree on a national fossil policy. The Victorian government has ignored our commitment that we will all agree to the same non-policy on unreliable, expensive, damaging, good, clean, not expensive coal renewables. All agree not to do anything as dangerous to the good, clean fossils as making a decision. Uh, so when will you have the non-target, non-policy, non-decision? I don't follow. We... We already have it. Finally, thank goodness we've got the Minister for Financing the filthy rich Matthias Rotten Tudor to alert us to an even greater danger, the greatest danger facing this country, as he told a gathering of the filthy rich the other night.
the envious raising inequality. Raising inequality clearly equating to the politics of envy, the dangers of a socialist government, and what dangers? East Germany transposed on true blue Aussie, the Stasi throwing the filthy rich into dungeons, a wall keeping the riffraff out. Oh no, we've already got that one, but, but thank you, Matthias, for alerting us to the dangers of mentioning inequality. As you say, the consequences are frightening. Pleasure. The unequal can rely on me and my good friends. Don't forget, envy is one of the seven deadly sins. Very good point. Good afternoon. I wonder if he learns that at church every Sunday. I doubt it. I don't mean Kevin. That was Mr Kevin Healy and that was his week that was and you can hear City Limits with Kevin and a, a few friends and a cup of green tea tomorrow morning between 9 and 10 here on 3CR and of course we are Melbourne Community Radio Station. If you've got the old analogue it's 8.55am. If you're digital it's 3CR. If you like to stream on your laptop computer it's 3cr.org.au and you'll see a point for streaming or you can have this program and many many others on 3cr podcast to your computer and you can listen or not listen to us anytime you choose it's now 13 minutes past four The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network presents War, Peace and Independence. Keep Australia out of US wars. Amidst an escalating threat of another major war breaking out, this timely conference will be held in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September. The conference will address the struggle against US bases, drone warfare, peace as union business, US political and military influence and much more. For details and bookings, head to ipan.org.au or go to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's Facebook page, a 3CR supporter. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR. Still supporting musicians and writers, and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. Good news, Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association, who's been overseas for a few weeks, is back and ready and willing to talk about issues pertaining to the people living under Moroccan occupation in Western Sahara, the only remaining colony in Africa, and also those living in refugee camps in Algeria. So let's start, Kate, with a couple of ongoing issues First, the much-delayed civil court case for a number of Western Sahara human rights activists who were arrested, tortured and received extremely harsh prison sentences after being found guilty in a military court in Morocco. After years of pressure 
on the authorities in Morocco. They were forced to agree to a civil trial, but that process in itself has been anything but satisfactory. Is there any resolution of that trial yet? Oh, they have reached a verdict. The civil trial took place over many months. They dragged it out in a very political kind of way to avoid various things and to, I don't know, get to have their verdict coming at a convenient time for the authorities. It started just after the United Nations Security Council had met in April so that that didn't have to uh, be commented on during the Security Council debate, but it, it went over many months. I don't suppose there was a lot of hope, but there had been a lot of work done, particularly by the group in France who are opposed to torture. They had the a report from the United Nations that said that all the earlier verdicts were thrown out because they were based on confessions under torture and this had no validity. But when it came to it, the uh, Moroccan court wouldn't agree to acknowledging that United Nations particip- uh, verdict. I mean, or, And they went ahead exactly the same kind of information that there'd been before, which was very inadequate. There was absolutely nothing to link any of the Sahrawis to the deaths of the 11 Moroccan members of the various auxiliary and and security services. The victims were not even named and and, and there was absolutely no basis for giving any kind of verdict, let alone returning exactly the same verdicts as the first military court. So it was extremely disappointing, but there is a growing Hopefully there might be a growing protest at the fact that the confessions under torture were accepted as incriminating these people. And indeed the International Bar Association made a statement saying that the use of torture can never be justified by failing to treat these allegations of torture in a timely manner and with the importance they deserve the Moroccan authorities are effectively legitimising the violation of a right that has long been accepted as non-derogable. That means it cannot be removed. And, of course, we all know that Morocco was one of the chosen sites for rendition by the United States and has a, a long history of torturing its prisoners. There have been complaints quite recently by non-Saharawis as well, people who've been arrested in the troubles that Morocco's currently having in its north, uh, the northern region called the Rif. And a lot of the people that are regarded as causing trouble have been arrested and exactly the same kind of thing is going on up there. Uh, So uh, Morocco hasn't learnt any lessons at all about improving its behaviour. So they, in a sense, thumb their noses at at groups like the International Bar Association? That's right, exactly. They take no notice and 
it's hard. They just it's this confidence of impunity in their impunity that is so galling for people, high-minded people like Hans Corell, who is as straight as a die. There's absolutely nothing about him that could ever be corrupted or whatever. And he is so earnest about trying to preserve and maintain human rights and other legal standards around the world as an international figure. And Morocco can just, as you say, not take any notice at all, look the other way and carry on as before. Yeah, another problem that's arising from Morocco, though, is that increasingly Western Sahara seems to be an embarrassment to uh, Morocco. It is getting in the way of some of the things it might want to do. And just uh, in the last week or so, the, there's been a meeting in Mozambique of the African Union about trade with Japan. And the Moroccans did this very childish thing of actually trying to bar the door to the Sahrawi delegation. And the security people in charge of the conference called the police. And I, I don't think they actually threw the Moroccans out, but they ensured safe passage for the Sahrawis. But the African Union did make a statement that they expected Morocco to behave correctly and to take their place in the African Union uh, on a basis of equality with all of the other members. And they were asked to sit next to the Sahrawi delegation. So, yeah, it may be evident to some people who perhaps didn't realise before that Morocco's entry into the... Uh, uh, or re-entry into the African Union was to be there as a troublemaker more than as a participating uh, member. The other issue emanating from decades of theft of the Western Sahara, phosphate that's been shipped around the world by Morocco, early this year two shipments were seized, the first in Panama bound for Canada and the second in South Africa bound for New Zealand. A Panama court has dismissed the Western Sahara claims on the first one, saying that there's no proof that it belonged to Western Sahara. Is that correct? I understood that they said that they didn't have jurisdiction to seize the cargo. And so in that sense, they threw it out. Their law is a little bit different from the South African law and the case was made in a different way, I understand. And so the Polisario Front has appealed that decision, but so far as I know, there's no response yet to that appeal. And what about the South African court case? The South African court case, as I say, is a different matter. The High Court of South Africa met to consider the question of seizing this cargo and three judges determined that it should pass to trial and at that point the Moroccan company which was defending the 
case, said that they would withdraw and they said it was a silly trial and they made all the same complaints, a complete mirror of all the complaints that had been made about their trial of the political prisoners. They said it was a, it was a, a, a trial that they shouldn't participate in and it didn't ha- they didn't have jurisdiction, even though the judges answered those arguments very tellingly. Then there was a question of... There were several respondents, I think they're called, the importing company, which was a New Zealand fertiliser company called Balance Agri-Nutrients. They decided... I don't think they wanted to, to contest the matter either. There was the question of the shipping owner or the charterer of the vessel. There were a lot of different parties involved, but... As far as I understand it, there's a kind of stalemate following that decision and it is expected that the cargo will be assigned to the Sahadawis and that they will then be able to sell it on the world market. But to my knowledge, they haven't actually taken ownership of it yet. So the ship is still in... South Africa? Yes. After all those months? Hundreds, hundred and whatever days, yes, over a hundred days. So someone's going to have to be paying for the the, the cost of it being there and yes. also who's paying the fact that it's not going to New Zealand? Who's paid for this? I know. And Cargo. Balance Agri-Nutrients CEO was confident that they would be covered by insurance on, on this matter at $10,000 a day and it's getting near the cut-off point where the amount of money that they will have spent is close to the value of the cargo. But I think there may be a dispute about that happening as well. So um, it may be that dispute that needs to be settled before the whole matter can be resolved. And does this mean that there hasn't been any further shipments out of Western Sahara? Uh, Not exactly. There have been a couple of shipments. Some of them, as far as we can tell, are only part shipments and part of the cargo has been loaded in Morocco proper. I mean, for a start, Morocco, when the Moroccan fertilizer uh, phosphate company took on this case, they seem to have promised to balance agri-nutrients that they would replace the cargo and a replacement cargo has been sent and indeed arrived in New Zealand and that was one of the ones that as far as we understand have got part Sahrawi part Moroccan phosphate there has been another shipment and I've forgotten where it's going I think there may be another one on its way somewhere to Canada and there's also one that another one to New Zealand for the other importer called Ravensdown, and I'm not quite sure whether that is pure Sahrawi phosphate or a mixture with uh, mixed with Moroccan, but uh, so but but that is still very very little activity compared with the number of ships that would normally have been passing through the port of Layoun with phosphate cargoes to go around the world. And any shipments come to Australia? Not to our knowledge. No, we don't. We believe nothing has come from there to us to Australia. Well, there's another area of um, 
stealing produce from Western Sahara, and that's sand. And, it, and a journalist from The Guardian actually broke this story, travelled to there and dug up a bit of sand or tried to dig up a bit of sand and got into trouble and found out that it was um, coming from Western Sahara. Yes. On the uh, some of the Canary Islands, the sand is black and tour operators or, or, or hoteliers, uh, resort owners, etc., think that it looks more attractive if it's yellow sand. And so they have been importing sand from the desert, which is only very close to the Canary Islands, like 100 kilometres or something across the sea. And the, the, the importation of sand has been going on a good while, but it is often used in construction for mixing with cement and so on. But in this case, it was a large amount of sand spread right over a whole beach in front of a new resort. 70,000 tonnes. Yes, it's yes. a lot of sand. A lot of sand. And apparently that's in defiance of international law. Well, yes, it is, because it's the same situation did... as all of the other pillage of resources that it needs to happen with, with two conditions being satisfied. One is the consent of the Sahrawi people, the indigenous people of the area, and to their benefit. And in the case of the sand, or any of these cases, none of the benefit is going to the Sahrawis who are living in refugee camps. There can be an argument about whether any of the benefit goes to the Sahrawis who are living in the occupied territory. They would say no, but Moroccans can point to various things that they've done that they say is benefiting the community, like maybe they've built a school or they improved the roads. Well, that's for their benefit, <laughs> in fact. For, but you can't argue about how, how much the refugees over the border in Algeria have benefited, and that is nothing. Zilch, yeah. A conference coming up in October, at the acronym is EUCOCO 2017. What does that stand for? Yes, it's uh, always called UCOCO. I was going to say that, but I thought yeah. I'll say it wrong. Yeah, no, no, no it's, called, it's known, known as UCOCO, has been going since the beginning of the conflict. There were concerned Europeans as soon as they heard about the Moroccan invasion in 1975, and various people, some of whom I met, in fact, went immediately to help. Two doctors I know were helping with the children who'd been bombed with white phosphorus and napalm. And from there, it started as... But different people were doing different things. There were Spanish groups going, there were Italians going, and they wanted to coordinate their efforts. And so they started this conference that would... all the people who are Europeans who were helping could meet together and coordinate so that some would look after the medical things and some would look after the food and others would look after other aspects. So that's what it stands for, the European uh, Conference Coordinating Support for the Sahrawi People. The other bit gets left off because UCOCO is quite long enough. 
And how does that relate to 2017? Oh, yes. So the the current year, uh, these conferences tend to happen in the late autumn, uh, European autumn. So um, this one's in October in France. And now, or for really the last 10 or 15 years, they've been broadening it out to other parts of the world and they've been particularly trying to get more representation from African countries and Latin American countries and Australians have been on several occasions and we would be very happy for an Australian to go this year to have a representative there is very valuable and it's a great way to meet lots of Saharawis because we don't see very many of them here. There is always a big delegation coming uh, from Western Sahara, both these days we get them coming both from the occupied territory and from the refugee camps, and high-level uh, ministers and even the president is likely to come. So, so that part of it's very interesting, but it's also interesting meeting people from the other European countries who have all nearly all got a very long history of supporting these people. And how does that support help the people on the ground in the occupied territories and also in the camps? Well, like everything, I th- it's a bit hard to say that it's ever actually resolved a problem, I would think, especially the, uh, politically speaking. But even if it's just a matter of getting Italian mayors who have twinned their city with a a Western Sahara city to come and express their solidarity with the cause or a politician from Spain or from the European Parliament to do the same. It's a way of strengthening the solidarity and it's, I think, with this kind of arm wrestle that the whole conflict is like. There's not a lot of movement each way, but it helps to keep the issue alive. It helps to keep us in the same place because I think that if that resistance wasn't there, the Saharawis would have been pushed aside long ago. And so although it doesn't seem to resolve it, it does help to keep the issue as a happening thing, yeah. And the things they talk about are really the things that we talk about on this program. Indeed, indeed. There will be some plenary sessions where these kind of speeches of solidarity will be made. Those will be translated into three languages uh, or four, uh, I think, Spanish, French, English and Arabic. Well, probably they'll be given in one of those languages, so they'll be translated into the other three. And then there's a, a big session of workshops and the workshops will focus on one particular matter, either the political resolution, the peace process and raising awareness uh, in, in Europe of the conflict among politicians and so on. The um, human rights issues will be another big area to be discussed and the natural resources. Sometimes in the past they've had workshops on women, on youth and trade unions, but I think this time they're just going to try and keep it focused on those three issues. 
Do the people from the occupied territory have problems getting to conferences like this? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And it's quite hard for them to have passports for the, in the first place. And there's a very good chance that they will be arrested when they get home and interrogated and whatever, yeah, and hassled and hassled even if they're not because a lot of the people kind of people who will come to that are probably under continual surveillance anyway and so they but they do just, let them out sometimes they, they can it can happen yes that's right another group this time in africa itself it's the eco was yeah. that's right well that's another sort of side issue that's coming up in a way through the african union through morocco's attempt to take part in the African Union and identify more as a member of Africa. and They're a bit on the nose, aren't they? Unfortunately, they've behaved so badly that nobody really wants to be their friends. And there's another story which I have to confess I haven't read about all the bribery that took place by Morocco of the various African states to get them their vote of participating in the AU through. But I can report on that another time or give the link. But this is a... ECOWAS is a economic union of West African states. And among those are a lot of friends of Morocco and France. But one in particular is not, is a friend of the Saharis, and that's Nigeria. And it's a very big and powerful... African state. After South Africa, it's probably the next biggest. And so the Nigerians have made a very clear case of why it's inappropriate for Morocco to join that union. One of the reasons they want to join is because they've messed up their own own union, economic union, the Maghreb Union of Northwest Africa, uh, was instituted many years back. But when they tried to meet, Algeria would always insist on Western Sahara being represented as it, in its own right. And sometimes Morocco would agree, and occasionally there were meetings, but sometimes the uh, Sahrawis would agree not to attend. But often as not, the whole meeting would get scuppered because Morocco would walk out and then there would be no no meeting and no progress in creating this economic union. And, and that's indeed one of the reasons that we always cite for why it is in Morocco's interest to resolve this issue. Why are they keeping it going? Why are they, it's becoming very evident that the world is not going to just look around and say, oh, uh, you're not occupying that country really, isn't It's really your own, isn't it? That's not going to happen. And it's against international law. It's against what the United Nations stands for. And if, as um, the well-known commentator Stephen Zunes always says, if the United Nations allowed Morocco to just uh, to accept its fait accompli, that it's there and it's occupying this country, and say, yes, okay, then you have this country, that would fly in the face of the founding charter of the United Nations, which is that no country should extend its boundaries by force. And it would 
be a very serious infringement of that charter. But the trouble is you've got countries like France who've got the veto when the vote comes. This is what, yes. So obviously France has to be persuaded if to play it straight and not try and do these silly games and to allow the vote of self-determination to take place because what? really the Saharawis are not going to give up until they get their vote of self-determination. What's in it for France to keep this going? Morocco's control. Interesting, yes. They all love Morocco. They have holiday houses there, sometimes very opulent holiday uh, places. But they can still have them, just let Western Sahara free. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's hard, uh, but I don't know. Morocco blackmails them in various ways, I think. I don't know why. And then, of course, you've got the US supporting Morocco as well. Exactly. Especially the Clintons. You see, in the the old days of the... the, When the world was polarised into... East and West. uh, East and West. Morocco was seen as siding with the West. And so countries like uh, America particularly... Were, were happy to side with it and they were very frightened of siding with a country that was sympathetic to Russia, to the USSR. Uh, the Saharawis weren't fussy either way, but because of the forces building up against them from the West, they were basically forced into aligning with the East and, and that happened with a lot of other countries as well. With a lot of other countries as well. And uh, Syria, for example, in those days gave a lot of assistance to the Saharawis and they helped with the education and many other ways. Not so more recently, but they uh, and the Russians contributed some of the weapons, I think, that they had in their war. But all of that, the Iron Curtain has gone, the Berlin Wall has come down and we're in a different different um, game now. But the same alignments seem to be persisting in the case of France and America. And the decolonisation process and the UN peace process not going very far? Well, we, there is some hope that there might be uh, more progress as we've got a new personal envoy for the Secretary-General. He's called Horst Köhler, and he's a former president of Germany. He has a a certain amount of experience in Africa, I understand, as well as the World Bank and various institutions, international institutions of, of that sort. But hopefully he is coming with a fresh mind, to give to the this very knotty problem and hopefully both parties will agree to cooperate with whatever he is able to set in motion. And the decolonisation? Well, one hopes that he will take his obligations seriously as a representative of the United Nations and stick to their... A standard protocol of decolonizing the uh, Western Sahara and not just uh, having a kind of gentleman's agreement for the Moroccan autonomy plan, which is what Morocco would like, where they would grant 
a certain degree of autonomy to Western Sahara, but they would keep the flag, the currency, the security services, and in other words, it would be part of Morocco and all the bits that would mean independence for the Saharawis would would not be granted. It must irk the rest of Africa to know that they've still got a colony on their continent. It does, it does, and that is something that the African Union is glad to say is very strong about, and they do keep the pressure going to decolonise their last colony. And it's part of the charter of the African Union that Morocco had to agree to by becoming a member. And so, yeah, one just hopes that somebody somewhere will make them hold firm to their agreements that they make. Lots of stuff going out and looks as though worse stuff coming in earlier this month. The first U.S. hamburger chain opened in the occupied territories. No prize for guessing who? That's right. It's McDonald's. And uh, they've sort of slipped in without perhaps a lot of people realising. But since that was announced that they were opening their branch, their, if you call it a branch, I don't know, a franchise there, a guy in Spain has started a petition for people to pledge that they would boycott McDonald's everywhere in the world until the chain removes its branch in El Ayun. Thanks, Kate. That's Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association talking about lots of issues facing the people in the occupied territory of Western Sahara. It's coming up to 4.46 and this is Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Do you need mental health support from people who have been there? Wellways Helpline is a free and confidential service providing mental health information, support and referral advice. All our Helpline volunteers are peers, people who have lived experience of mental health issues. If you are experiencing concerns with your mental health and well-being or supporting someone who is, call Helpline on 1300 500, Monday to Friday, 9am till 9pm. If you don't know which way to turn or who to talk to, call us on 1300 500. Wellways Australia is a leading national mental health disability support and community care organisation and a 3CR supporter.
This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Who can forget the image of Australian Foreign Minister Gareth Evans and Indonesian Foreign Minister Ali Alatas celebrating in a plane over the Timor Sea on the signing of the 120-page Timor Gap Treaty in 1989. The split was 50-50 for 40 years, with an option of another 20. Quoting author Kim McGrath, For more than 40 years, Australia has played hardball with some of the poorest people on the earth. It is one thing to be caught out spying to protect citizens from terrorists or for national security, but the allegations that Australians spied for commercial gain under the cover of an aid program is something else entirely. These are just two instances in the sordid history of Australia's role in stealing the oil and gas resources from some of the poorest people in the world, the East Timorese. Now a new book, Crossing the Line, Australia's Secret History in the Timor Sea, described by José Ramos Horta, Nobel Peace Prize laureate, as an exposure of Australia's ruthless pursuit of resources in the Timor Sea, a timely and definitive book. I spoke with Kim recently and began by saying that she had spent much of the last decade researching the basis for Australia's claim to the oil and gas resources on the Timor-Leste side of the medium line in the Timor Sea and asked her what was her awareness and knowledge prior to 2007 of the price the Timorese had paid over many, many years to ultimately achieve independence. My personal knowledge was very limited. I mean, I grew up in Melbourne and was aware of, you know, that there was a conflict to our north through the 70s and 80s, but it was something I did never understand. I had a vague awareness of the Balibo Five, the journalists who were murdered at Balibo in October 1975, just before Indonesia invaded. But that was about the extent of it. So when I got the opportunity to work with Steve Brax in Timor, assisting Shanana Gusmao, when he first became Prime Minister in September 2007, I've was very much a a greenhorn in terms of my experience and knowledge of Timor-Leste. And in particular, I had no understanding of the oil dispute between Australia and Timor. But the thing I found very perplexing when I got up there was there was this rule because of a treaty Australia and Timor had signed soon after independence that you weren't even really allowed to talk about the oil and gas issue in the Timor Sea. So that set my curiosity alight and... Ten years later, I've written a short, hopefully reader-friendly, accessible book detailing the uh, history of Australia's engagement over oil in the Timor Sea. I'm just wondering why you chose oil and gas. I mean, there were lots of issues between Australia and East Timor, and especially with Steve Brax over there with the new government. What was it in oil and gas that took your attention? There was no information about it. So, so when I first started working with Steve Brax, I did an online sort of, you know, desktop crash course and read everything I could get my hands on about East Timor. And there's been some extraordinary journalism done over the years by you know, Jill Jalouf and James Dunn and other writers over the years. 
and some terrible stories, you know, had been revealed as a result of their their journalism. But there was a big gap in terms of anything about the history of oil and gas. And what I just didn't understand when I first went up was how it was that Australia could claim rights to oil and gas fields that were clearly much, much closer to Timor than they were to Australia. And anything I looked at sort of on the Australian government websites and things were you know, full of lots of technical detail about treaties and maritime law and but but just none of it made any sense to me. So I just started, you know, digging around for myself and eventually came across this massive amount of information in the National Archives, a lot of which has already been digitalised, so you can read it from you know, read sort of cabinet files and things from the luxury of your of your laptop at home. And there I discovered that while a lot of the official government publications and DFAT had certainly put out, that's the Department of Foreign Affairs, had put out a lot of books on the supposedly telling the truth about the history of Australia's relationship with East Timor and the events leading up to the invasion and then the events around that the 99 period. And in, in all those pub, official publications, oil was barely touched on. And it, what I found in the archives was that there were files, hundreds of files, that, you know, some running to over 30 parts, dealing with Australia's negotiations with what was then Portuguese Timor prior to the invasion, Australia's relationship with the oil companies who were constantly pressuring the government to assure them that their permits were valid, files in the negotiations with Indonesia in 1972, just before the invasion, when Australia negotiated a very favourable treaty. And that, of course, set my curiosity alight further about, well, why was all this stuff not part of the story. And then the more I, I looked, read the files and got into it, it realised that we're talking about billions of dollars worth of oil and gas resources that had very conveniently sort of been written out of Australia's official history as if the fact that there was billions of dollars at stake had nothing to do and no influence on Australia's foreign policy in the lead up to the events in 75 and in 99. I eventually turned my research in the archives into a PhD, which I'm still still doing um, and the more I dug the more I found that oil and gas was at the you know sort of central to Australia's foreign policy. Were you surprised how far back this um, issue goes like right back to the late 60s early 70s? Yes well that's how I, I started I just to, to try and find get an answer to this issue about how was it that we were claiming the oil and gas fields and the the one that's most well known is Greater Sunrise and that's about 150 miles from um, East, East Timor and um, 350 from Darwin. So I, met, I tracked back how the original permits were issued and I found them in the archives in Darwin and they were issued in uh, or applied for in 1962 by Woodside, which at that stage was this near-bankrupt little two-bit company from Victoria that hadn't discovered anything ever. And it had fortuitously employed a... Um, genius Russian geologist, this guy Nicholas Budakov, and he'd been to Western Australia and looked at some successful oil and gas finds there in the 1950s and came back convinced that there was oil, in the, oil and gas in the Timor Sea. And so it was on his suggestion that um, Woodside applied for these permits that included this area quite remarkably, I found at the time, that included Greater Sunrise and the Australian government bizarrely had initially um, claimed Australia's what was called its continental shelf 
to try and keep the Japanese out of oyster bed fields. And then they conveniently sort of changed their, well, shifted their emphasis from oysters to oil and used this argument at international law that you can issue permits on your continental shelf. And that was the basis. And Australia maintained that Australia's continental shelf ended at this, what's called the Timor Trough, which is a, a dip in the continental shelf between, or dip in the area of seabed between Australia and Timor. That was one of the, um, the you know, the issues at maritime, international maritime law about continental shelf and things can get very complicated. But what I've found was that um, Australia had claimed, had issued the permits on the basis that a continental shelf, you know, went to the Timor Trough. And there were, at the same time as Australia was issuing these permits, international law was shifting and there were moves at the United Nations to codify international law. And so there was a, what ended up being the most successful and biggest UN convention that's ever, ever happened, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. That process was starting and under the rules that were being discussed there, where um, there was a country shared a continental shelf, the boundary would be the median line, in which case Australia wouldn't have been able to issue the permits north of the median line into the oil-rich areas. So what Australia, Australia argued and confessed with Indonesia in the, in early ni- the 1970s that the continental shelf of Australia actually ended at this Timor Trough and therefore, it wasn't a question of sharing a continental shelf because it was clearly, you know, the ch- shelf ended at the trough and therefore Australia could claim to there. Indonesia argued at the time that that wasn't the case, that the Australia's continental shelf, in fact, extended beneath the island of Timor. And this was one of those things that I'd found in various articles and things I'd read that was debated by geologists and international lawyers. And then one day in the archives, I came across a document from... Uh, early 1970, just before Australia was about to start negotiations with Indonesia, and it showed that, or it argued, which is a two-page document from the Bureau of Mineral Resources, that on my lay reading of it, and I'm not a geologist, but it seemed to be saying that there was no evidence of, well, it did say there was no evidence of continental crust in the, the bottom of the Timor Trough, and therefore there was no evidence to support Australia's claim that the continental shelf ended at the Timor Trough. And despite having that, that, that advice was said twice into the department, um, I found it on another file that dated that it, it had been reset, was sent in February and then resent in March, just before the negotiations with Indonesia started. And yet despite having this advice from their own expert body, Australia's negotiators went into the negotiations and continued to insist that the Australia's continental shelf ended at the Timor Trough. And remarkably, that's what Australia was still arguing in its public hearings at the public hearings of the um, UN conciliation process that's going on at the moment. And yet, uh, geologists, I've spoken to various geologists, but so pretty much from the, from the 70s onwards, it's been accepted that interpretation, which was argued by Indonesia and in Australia's Bureau of Mineral Resources, was correct, that Australia's continental shelf it does in fact extend beneath Timor, which means going right back from the 60s and well, certainly the early 70s, it unequivocally should have been a median line boundary in the Timor Sea. Now you're talking about the early 70s where Portugal was was still the colonising power over Timor. Why were they excluded from the talks? That's a good question and one, one of the myths that's sort of been pushed by the Department of Foreign Affairs over the years is that Portugal, the reason that there was the so-called Timor Gap, which is 
So Australia and Indonesia did negotiate a treaty in 1972. It was very favourable to Australia, putting the boundary line much closer to Indonesia than it was to Australia. And there was a gap where Portuguese Timor was. And the story was that that was because Portugal refused to negotiate. So that's why there was the so-called Timor Gap. What I found in the archives is that Portugal had been very keen to negotiate and from as early as the 1970, had been making representations through its embassy in Canberra, through its own foreign affairs, to our embassy in, in Lisbon, through the consulate in Jakarta, and were desperate to negotiate with Australia. And Portugal was motivated in part by the fact that an American company, Oceanic Exploration, had applied to to the Portuguese government for a permit in the Timor Sea to the median line on the basis that that was their interpretation of international law, which would, of course, overlapped not just the Greater Sunrise permit area that Woodside had, but other permit, permits that Australia issued to a, a French company, Aquitaine, and a n- number of other companies. So what played out in the files in the archives that is not in Australia's official histories is that there was a full-blown diplomatic war between Australia and Portugal right up to the eve of the in- Indonesia's invasion because Portugal continued to insist on the meeting line. And one of the things that comes out of the files is that Austra- Australian officials believed that if Indonesia took over East Timor, they would just agree to close the Timor Gap with a straight line, i.e. just joining the endpoints of either side of the treaty that had been negotiated in 1972, which would have put all the oil and gas-rich areas in Australian waters, which suggests that there may have been a sort of... Well, there was an economic motive for... And Australia had an economic interest in Indonesia's takeover of East Timor in 1975. You are listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with Kim McGrath, the author of a new book, Crossing the Line, Australia's Secret History in the Timor Sea. Can we talk about some of the organisations and the individuals who have worked for many years to take that oil and gas from East Timor at all costs? You've got politicians in Australia, both Labor and Liberal, You've got ministers for foreign affairs, heads of departments, spy agencies, oil companies, the Indonesian government, Downer when he left politics. Can you talk about some of those people and organisations and how they've contributed to what we've got today? Yes, I mean, I think there's a whole other sort of thesis to be written on the group think that operates within the Department of Foreign Affairs. It's a big player in this, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's managed to sort of cleverly almost capture politicians of I mean some were very willing to go down that pathway but so one of the one of the stories that I tell in crossing the line is the I look at the um, Fraser Peacock years there's been a lot of analysis over the years of Gough Whitlam's very pro-Indonesia pro-Indonesia takeover his Timor position and the role of the Australia's then ambassador in Indonesia uh, Richard Woolcott but there's been less focus on what happened in the years post-invasion. And people often forget that the, actual, the time of the invasion, Whitlam had already been turfed out in November 75. And 
there was a caretaker government, so it was Fraser and Peacock in the invasion happened on the 7th of December and there was an, an election on December the 13th. And initially Fraser and Peacock were sympathetic to, to Timorese independence or to a self-determination. But quite cleverly you could see how the department sort of almost, well, they were cleverly manipulated into a position where they... I mean, Fraser was encouraged to write a letter to Suharto that was then sort of potentially compromising later on. Peacock had been on a... Um, in, when he was still in opposition, had been on holiday in Bali and had been... or in Indonesia and had been conveniently briefed by the Indonesians on the extent of Australia's knowledge of Indonesia's invasion plans. So they were both very quickly compromised and... And then, but then the key thing that really put the pressure on them to recognise Indonesia's occupation, and probably you know, Australia became the only country, only Western country to officially recognise Indonesia's sovereignty in East Timor, despite the UN still recognising Portugal as the official administrating power. When it became clear that the only way Australia could satisfy the needs of the oil companies to get security in the Timor Sea was to negotiate a treaty to close the Timor Gap with Indonesia. And that necessarily meant Australia had to recognise Indonesia's occupation. And that's one of the things I explore in the book that I haven't been really looked at before, the link between the lengths that Australian public officials in those years went to downplay and suppress allegations of atrocities in East Timor and this is a period where 150,000 people died. And by, 19, by the 1978-79, there was mass starvation in East Timor. And while there were people managing to smuggle information out about the extent of the, the famine, and while Australian officials were being briefed by Indonesian generals that one of their strategies was to, quote, starve out the resistance, our government was downplaying those allegations to try and create a domestic environment here in Australia where it would be possible for them to politically get away with recognising the Indonesian occupation. The whole saga has got points of where I just have, you know, my jaw would drop about just how could we have, have allowed that to happen. And this period of the mass starvation in the late 70s and through the 80s, and then when the Hawke government got in in the early 80s, they'd again, they'd had a policy of... Um, self-determination and very quickly the pressure to close the gap and meant they had to recognise Indonesia, which meant the whole Indonesia's sovereignty, which meant the whole idea of self-determination went out the window again. Were there certain personalities in the Department of Foreign Affairs who you identified who carried this through? I mean, there were some individuals that just stand out just by because of their position. And certainly Richard Wolcott, there's, there's a big book of documents published by DFAT in 2000 that supposedly showed, you know, the truth of what happened in the 74-75 period. And he's sort of all through all through that because he, he was the ambassador. And he certainly was a very strong advocate and makes some of the few documents where there is an explicit link between oil and Australia's interest in East Timor are sort of a, a, they're actually put down in black and white, uh, mainly because they were already leaked back in the 70s. But it continued beyond Woolcott. The next ambassador, Critchley, was equally an enthusiastic sort of advocate for recognising Indonesia and Indonesia's occupation and downplaying 
the extent of the humanitarian crisis, and then it extended sort of all the way through to now. It's just this remarkable, um, and it's something I think Australians, we don't quite realise just what a powerful independent beast that is, that despite the politicians that are in there trying to look like it's very much that Yes Minister is a documentary in terms of where the power sits. Did you look at the role of the Australian media in all of this? I haven't looked at that explicitly except it's clear that there were some there were certainly individual journalists who tried to get the story out but one thing that is clear is that the Department of Foreign Affairs um, interestingly Richard Walcott became the was in the late 60s, headed up the first PR department section in the Department of Foreign Affairs. Uh, so in that role, he you know, met all the national editors and became and studied the way it was done in the US places and became you know, quite skilled at massaging, in Australia's national interest, the stories that were you know, in, the, in the major papers. And their PR machine, and to this day, is a phenomenally you know, successful beast that supposedly in Australia's national interest, has very close relationships with media of all all descriptions. And I mean, I was, it was remarkable, I said, the amount of... You know, so many of these files in the archives were newspaper clippings back in the day. So they were... And, and then there would be comments on what was in the story and, and occasionally someone would take credit for having planted that story. It's very clear in the archives just how much effort the department put into attempting to manipulate and massage the media coverage of the Whole East Timor crisis. And a couple of other very powerful beasts, uh, ASIO and the Australian Federal Police, with their raids and their... Yes, yes. I mean, that that whole episode in 2013 is quite remarkable, where um, one of the lawyers who'd been acting for Timor in the arbitration, um, which, I mean, that's a whole other saga, where a whistleblower had come forward to say that treaty that eventually was negotiated post-independence, which was the one that I mentioned earlier where it had these restrictions in it that you weren't, you couldn't talk about maritime boundaries, that in the course of those negotiations, it was alleged that ASIO had spied on the Timorese negotiating team. And it was after a failure of Australia to respond to Timor's efforts to resolve that, that Timor initiated and our arbitration proceedings in The Hague, and it was on the eve of one of the directions hearings for um, those arbitration proceedings that the lawyer acting for Timor, was his, home, his office was raided and the witness, known as Witness K, home was raided. Um, and it was by ASIO and, and the AFP. The Timor acted very quickly and took Australia to the International Court of Justice, and it was a humiliating episode for Australia, so the Timor won got an order that the well the documents were eventually handed back and some of the personalities there's a lot of crossover I mean that's the other thing that has come out of and you can see it in the archives that there's a core group of and certainly in the 70s and 80s it was all blokes and they all sort of went to the most of them all went to the, you know the elite schools and all very chummy and and what often astonished me, some of these, you know, the most highly educated, intelligent, and I'm sure these men see themselves as great intellectual men of the world, and yet they were making decisions and allowing, encouraging a policy that was having these absolutely catastrophic, hideous consequences 
on on the ground in Timor, an hour from Darwin, and the disconnect between the policies and the decision making processes in Canberra, and the reality of the the impact of the decisions that they were making, is something I still struggle to come to terms with. How many barriers do you believe were put in front of you to stop you getting all the information that you now have? I think initially, not many, because I just I started just looking at these oil and gas files sort of, you know, as far back as 2011 I first started pottering around in the National Archives and a lot of, some of those files were already fully declassified. But as I started applying for files that hadn't been um, accessed before and they'd go into DFAT for assessment, then they started coming back with big redactions. And since then, from I mean, I've got a, about 20 files that I'm appealing the various redactions in them through the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Through that process, over the years, they've, they've had to reassess some material and release some additional material to me and some material that was already leaked in the 1970s has sort of had to have been released. But that's one thing that does concern me that I suspect well, there's, still a, there's still a lot of material that supposedly it would not be in Australia's national interest for it to be released, declassified now, even though it goes back you know, over 40 years you know, concerning a treaty, for example, with Indonesia that's already you know, done and dusted and sorted, concerning what Australia knew about the the famine and and yeah, so I'm I'm scared or don't hate to think that I've, what I've, I've found is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of how sort of immoral Australia's foreign policy has been in this case. The issue is now back in court. Can you look back on how Australia has performed in those previous negotiations with the Timorese and also Indonesia? One. Well, if you could say they you know, performed brilliantly in achieving the outcomes that the Department of Foreign Affairs wanted, I think it's highly questionable that, I mean, that, you know, what's in the national interest is, you know, very much in the eye of the beholder. And in, in the book, I detail just briefly at the end various different positions that were put by people over the years that were seen to be in Australia's national interest, and they're all quite inconsistent. And it seems to me that it's it has not been in Australia's national interest to have that treaty that Indonesia still resents that was done in 1972. We still don't have a permanent water column boundary with Indonesia because it's too sensitive an issue to take back in with the Indonesian parliament. It has certainly been absolutely toxic and poisoned Australia's relationship with East Timor and now Timor-Leste. And it's embarrassed Australia internationally our position in the South China Sea, where we, you know, we look like to- total hip- hypocrites, because the Australia's continental shelf claim in the Timor Sea is the equivalent of China's nine dash line claim in the South China Sea. They're both old law, ignore UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, and the one area where it arguably has been in Australia's national interest is economically. If you look at the billions of dollars that Australia has received in royalties from areas of the Timor oil and gas fields north of the median line that Timor is Timor would argue are in its exclusive economic zone. But that's a very, very narrow, limited view of national interest. Just to repeat the smoking gun? Well, I think the report from the Bureau of Mineral Resources that they 
<coughs> disputed Australia's continental shelf position way back in the 70s, <coughs> undermines Australia's entire argument for the last 40 years. And I think the extent to which... I mean, my argument essentially is that since Australia issued those permits in the Timor Sea in 1963, unilaterally, without consulting Indonesia or in Portuguese Timor, we have just done everything possible to try and defend their validity. And the cost of that has been appalling. For 200,000 people have died in East Timor. And we're not talking here about some remote country in uh, the other side of the world. And we don't have that many big foreign policy issues that we're directly responsible for. Our relationship with Timor is the biggest blight in Australia's foreign policy and continues to be. Like, why we're not just sitting down and agreeing to a median line and just getting on with things at the moment? I mean, there's consultations going on at the moment and, you know, hopefully Australia might finally see the light and do the right thing. And, you know, they've got to realise people like Shanana Gushmao and, and the other, the Timorese leadership have come a, a long, long way and they know how to play the long game and they're not giving up. And they've got a lot to fight for. Well, just finally, Kim, it's probably been a, a big learning curve for you as well, this last years of research. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I I, I feel appalled that, uh, well, appalled, but also having now seen the, the way the Department of Foreign Affairs manages to manipulate the media, that um, it's understandable that it's not something that we're all aware of. But And that's what motivated me to write this book, because I just wanted to get the story out so that Australians could get an understanding of the true extent that we've betrayed one of our nearest neighbours. And that's not to say there are, you know, thousands of Australians that have got fabulous relationships with East Timor and Timor Leste and have done fantastic things over the years and there still are and there's this incredible rapport at um, the person-to-person level but our governments of all persuasions have got blood on their hands. Okay, congratulations on your work. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. And that's Kim McGrath, the author of Crossing the Line, Australia's Secret History in the Timor Sea. And you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377. VCR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. 
Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And on the program in a couple of weeks, I'll be speaking with Bruce Francis, who together with Brian Newman have been responsible for bringing the Gafia scarves here to Melbourne, selling many, many, many of them and continuing to buy them and take them to different places to sell and they've gone really well especially here at 3CR so we'll be hearing from Bruce talking about their trip to Palestine a couple of years ago which started their quest to bring their scarves here to Australia how they've gone where they've put them where they've sold them and just the education of people by buying these scarves and wearing these scarves and They're both going back to Palestine in November, so that will be an extra interview as well. But coming up with Bruce very soon on the history of the scarves here in Australia. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. It would appear that the moves to oust President Maduro in Venezuela have gone on the back burner, but that remains to be seen. For an update on how he views the situation in that country, I'm speaking with activist, journalist and author Fred Fuentes. Fred, looking for reasons why Venezuela has gone off the front page, is one the successful constituent assembly voting on the 30th of July? I think that's certainly one of the factors that helps explain why essentially we've seen a quite a drastic change of four months of quite heated street conflicts, violence, you know, I think the final tally of about 120 deaths uh, that occurred essentially from the start of April until July 30. In fact, we've the July 30 vote for the National Constituent Assembly being the most violent days of those four months. Uh, but essentially since then we've seen quite a, a petering off of the street protests. And as you mentioned, I think firstly it has to do with the, the strong message that was sent by the people who turned out on July 30 to vote for the Constituent Assembly, which was more than just simply a vote for candidates to the Constituent Assembly, as, as that's what it formerly was an election for. It was really a, a vote to, of opposition, a protest vote against those sort of months of street violence. And it was a message that I think was largely heard, including by the opposition leaders, who, uh, whilst um, certainly not calling for an immediate end to all the protests, has certainly dialed down their calls for more protests and also alongside that have actually expressed that they will be participating in the upcoming regional elections that will be occurring in Venezuela, uh, elections for state governorships, something that prior to July 30 they had continued to to say that they would be boycotting, that the only thing they were interested in was to bring an end to the Maduro government, but now have said that they will participate uh, in the electoral process uh, set for later this year. Constitutional Assembly is not something that we know much about here in Australia. Can you explain the process? Yes, well, look, a Constituent Assembly is essentially a a representative body, so it's one elected from the voters to entrusted mainly and primarily with the task of rewriting the Constitution. 
Uh, it has a, a certain history in Venezuela because one of the first acts and, in fact, one of the key election promises of, of Hugo Chavez, the president that uh, preceded Nicolas Maduro and that very much kick-started the whole sort of Bolivarian revolution that we hear about today. In his election campaign in 1998, uh, he, he promised to run uh, to establish a constituent assembly uh, in order to rewrite the constitution in Venezuela. Uh, he won the elections in 98 and in 99 there was a, elections for a constituent assembly and subsequently uh, the new constitution was uh, approved in a popular referendum. What Maduro has said in terms of the current constituent assembly, two things. Firstly is that he views it more as a, a body that will reform rather than dramatically rewrite the constitution. Uh, so the idea is that it's not a the, you know, certainly the, his vision of why the Constituent Assembly was needed was not simply to, to rewrite an entirely new constitution, uh, feeling that there was a lot in the current one that was very valid and people continued to support. But there was also a lot of things that had happened in Venezuela essentially since 1999. And so, for instance, emphasis was placed on the need to ensure that things like the social missions that have been so important to the providing widespread access to healthcare and education in Venezuela, policies that were influenced under Chavez but were not initially in the constitution, uh, hoping to include them in the constitution. Also to deal with some of the more underlying economic problems in the country, and particularly trying to lay some constitutional framework for an economy that moves away from oil dependency. So these are some of the issues that the, uh, Maduro has sort of put forward or certainly was put forward in the election campaign for the Constituent Assembly to discuss in terms of constitutional reform. There is another aspect to the Constituent Assembly that's important to mention, and that is that the, within the current Constitution, a Constituent Assembly can, can be convened and once in, in session essentially becomes a body that sits above all of the other state institutions, therefore has powers that uh, are above, uh, including the presidency uh, and the executive itself. So the other aspect of what uh, Maduro wanted to, uh, was hoping to get out of this constituent assembly was to kind of break the gridlock that currently exists between the, the competing state powers, the presidency, the national assembly, that's got controlled by the opposition, uh, the Supreme Court, uh, the public prosecution's office, which is also controlled by the opposition, uh, and trying to sort of establish a, a space for dialogue and debate together as a nation that Venezuela can, can try to deal with these situations. And this body would have the power to at least deal with those issues that are most specifically of concern to Venezuelans today. And, and the Constituent Assembly has made clear that it, it believes the two key issues that need to be worked on immediately in Venezuela. First is the re-establishment of, of peace in the country uh, and ensuring that you know a truth commission is set up to work out what really happened over the last four months, who was responsible for these 120 deaths, and that anyone, irrespective of their political leanings, who's been found to be responsible for these deaths, should be brought to justice. And the other is to also, uh, you know, take immediate measures to deal with the, the economic situation, which, whilst since July 30, we've seen, a, 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 you know, quite a sharp decline in the sort of political conflict in the, in the sense of the street protests in Venezuela, we've simultaneously seen a, a dramatic rise in in the sort of economic problems as, as prices continue to just go up almost on a daily and now hourly basis in Venezuela. So some, some very immediate measures need to be taken in that regards as well. And that's what hopefully the Constituent Assembly will begin to deal with. And how does it work? Who's going to be making those decisions? The Constituent Assembly itself is made up of 545 representatives. The majority of those, there's some 300-odd, were elected on a territorial basis. That is, they're elected to represent 
municipalities. Uh, every municipality in Venezuela has one delegate that was elected to the Constituent Assembly. The municipalities covering capital cities of the different states that make up Venezuela got two, generally because they tended to be larger. And Caracas, as the capital city and is and the, you know the large one of the largest municipalities in the country, got seven. The rest of the delegates were elected essentially to represent uh, sort of different sectors within Venezuelan society. So from amongst workers, there was a large number of delegates elected and even broken down within different industries. There's also representatives for pensioners and retirees, representatives for business owners, representatives for people with disabilities, uh, representatives from the education sector as well, students from, from the education sector. All of these 545 delegates therefore meet as a national constituent assembly. They've set up a number of commissions to start to deal with different areas. Uh, but really, I think the success or otherwise of the constituent assembly will be ensuring that those discussions, just like they did in 99, spill out from beyond just the formal body, the, the formal room where the 545 representatives are meeting. And actually, that discussion is taken into community um, gatherings, into workplace gatherings to discuss and debate the different aspects. And that's already begun to start uh, in, a, in a small scale, uh, but one would hope that that would be certainly the... And that's certainly what many of the grassroots activists in Venezuela are hoping, is that these, that these discussions spill out of the, the hall and into, into the communities and workplace so that it becomes really a nationwide discussion of how to deal with the current political situation in Venezuela. And what were the other reasons that you were going to put forward to why this has gone off the front page? Firstly, is the clear vote. It sent a very strong symbol, very strong signal to, to everyone that there was a large section of Venezuelan society, even amongst those who do not support the government, but a message from, the, from that section of society said, look, we, we want an end to this violence. This is not the way to resolve the situation. Secondly, we've seen opposition leaders somewhat divided uh, in terms of where to go, but certainly the majority thinking that, well, now let's go the electoral road. So that's been another aspect or that's helped to bring it down. I think a third aspect is, is a, a, a real rejuvenation or reinvigoration amongst the grassroots supporters in the country who sort of are following July 30 vote, really have sort of made their presence felt as well and, and reminded Venezuela and the rest of the world that it's, it's not just the government and the people who oppose the government, but actually the government itself continues to have a large and important uh, support base, a support base that you know, may have many criticisms of the government and is more than willing to express, express those criticisms, but also that sees the importance of defending a lot of the gains that, that have occurred. So I think all, all of these factors, I mean, I think you could also add other factors, for instance, like the tiredness of the opposition protesters. Of course, it's, it's difficult to do day-in, day day-out protests forever. And also the fact that the, it seemed very clear that the, the people leading the street protests, uh, in particular the opposition leaders, didn't really have a plan B. Their plan was, oh, we're just going to hit the streets until Maduro falls. But then, of course, you, you have to come up against the reality. Well, unless they were able to get the armed forces to fracture, and unless they were able to get the, the, the poor sectors of society, the popular classes in Venezuela who continue to be the main support base of the government, to fracture and to win over a section of them to their cause, they were not going to be able to overthrow the government simply by violent street protests. But they didn't seem to have a plan B. And so that sort of left the opposition side of politics a, a bit in, in, in state of un uncertainty about, about where to go to next. And 
and there certainly is a lot of debate now within the opposition, for instance, uh, uh, amongst not so much perhaps the political parties, but just the ordinary supporters of, of the opposition as to what to do next. You know, many, many feel that the, the young people who gave up their lives in the protest uh, you know, have been sold down the river by the opposition leaders who one day to the next have just decided that, you know, they were, they're just going to follow elections and, and try to maintain their posts in, in the different governorships uh, that they control or to perhaps win a few other ones. Others feel that how can the opposition on the one hand say that the, the elections were all a fraud, that every, every election in the last few years has been a fraud and yet continually say that they're going to go and run in the next elections uh, at, at the same time. So even amongst opposition supporters as well, there's certainly a, a sense of demoralisation or confusion as to which is the best way forward now for them in, this, in the current situation. And they have tried to denigrate the electoral system, haven't they? But it's one of the, the best in the world, isn't it? Almost from the first day that Jarvis got elected, it has always been this constant. Almost every election is followed by claims of fraud. And in fact, the claims already predate the elections in, in, in almost every case. So you have situations where, where for instance, even uh, prior to the last National Assembly elections, which actually the, the opposition won, they had already prepared T-shirts with written with fraud to get out on the streets to come out and protest, saying that there was definite fraud. And of course, only, only the fact that... The, you know, the, the Electoral Commission itself ratified, you know, said these are the results of, of the elections that reflected what people had voted on. It meant that they looked, you looked a bit silly to be claiming fraud when they when they had they had already won. But, I mean, we, we've seen this time and time again, and, of course, this time the opposition are, are claiming fraud. Firstly, without any actual substantial evidence to back this up, which is, which is always the case. But also, secondly, lacking any real legitimate reasoning for why there would be fraud. I mean, the opposition boycotted, so it wasn't like it was a, an election between pro-government and opposition supporters and opposition supporters were denied a seat in the Constituent Assembly. They, they were the ones that chose to boycott despite repeated attempts by the government to include them in discussions about how best to hold these elections, how best to have a Constituent Assembly, uh, one that the opposition itself only a few months before were campaigning for and, and wanted to happen. They boycotted and also there, there was no minimum vote uh, as such. There's no constitutional or legal minimum vote that, that was required uh, in order for the Constituent Assembly to go ahead. So it's sort of, it, it's almost a, somewhat of a farcical debate about, oh, was there a fraud when it, it would, didn't change any of the results of what occurred on the day. But, but what it does do is, is try to further delegitimise the electoral system in Venezuela uh, in the context of, of course, further elections that are going to occur. And we already know that this year there will be regional elections. Next year there will be presidential elections as well. And every presidential election in, in, in recent history, the opposition have always decried uh, fraud as well, uh, both, as I said, in the lead-up to and, and, and after the elections. You're listening to Fred Fuentes, journalist, activist and author, and the topic is the present situation in Venezuela. Just focus for a couple of minutes on the dismissal of the country's top prosecutor, Luis Ortega Diaz, which has excited a few people. She looks as though she's going to end up in the US after fleeing to Colombia. She accused Maduro of trampling on the constitution and overseeing a crackdown on dissent, and in response she will be investigated. What's behind that? And it's also her husband is being investigated as well. Yes, also Louisa Ortega has essentially been the, the Attorney General for quite a number of years now. She was been a, a sort of quite a loyal Chavez supporter, essentially up until this last period of violent protest. So, so early on, 
probably about May in, in, in this year, was when she became much more vocal in opposition to the government. Firstly, in her response to what was happening with the protests. So her comments were very much directed at the repression being carried out by the armed forces, uh, whilst largely remaining silent on the actions of some of the opposition protesters uh, who had been involved in, in violent protests and attacks on, on military bases as such. Uh, her criticism then shifted towards the Constituent Assembly elections, which she claimed, and of course everyone has their, their personal right to claim any opinion, but she, she used her position uh, as the Attorney-General uh, to deem that it was an un, un, unconstitutional election that was occurring uh, with, with the Constituent Assembly, despite the fact that the Constitution being been very clear on this and, and the, been the, that position being ratified by the Constitutional Court of the, the Supreme Court of Justice. This is a context that then led up to the situation where ultimately Louisa Ortega was, was fired by the Constituent Assembly, as I explained before, the Constituent Assembly as a body sitting above all of the other state powers has, has the ability to do that uh, under the Constitution. Now, of course, one can then debate whether that was perhaps the smartest move to make. I think there are a lot of legitimate arguments for why Louisa Ortega should have been removed uh, from her post. Now, many of them having to do with crimes of omission uh, were essentially un under her, her post. The Public Prosecution's Office had essentially not done anything, as I said, in terms of trying to bring to justice who was responsible for the violence that was occurring over the last four months. But it also goes beyond that. So, for instance, you know, we've had a very long-running situation in Venezuela where it's been known for quite a, quite a while now, or at least certainly heavily suspected of cases of corruption uh, in the currency control system involving obviously people involved in the government or in the state bureaucracy that runs the currency control system but also a number of important companies uh, that have been using their access to those dollars to essentially uh, personally enrich themselves. Some 80 companies were, were presented, you know, evidence was presented of, of possible involvement in corruption. Uh, and yet the Public Prosecution's Office essentially sort of sh uh, put all those cases in the Cabinet, uh, meaning that they, they certainly weren't delved into. So there, there are many issues of problems that have been occurring in the public prosecution. should also be noted that there was all, she was already facing trial, you know, having to answer for herself uh, towards the Supreme Court. Personally, I think that may have been a better way to have resolved the situation, to allow her to have a, a right of response to present her case uh, and then the, the Supreme Court to be out of, uh, you know, found its own ruling in judging whether uh, she should be removed for her, her post from, from negligence. Uh, and for the other potential crimes or that, that she could have been involved in. However, that, that was not the decision that was taken. The, the National Constituent Assembly decided to remove her from her post, uh, and subsequent to that, uh, she fled the country. Uh, what, of course, is quite concerning and is always the kind of thing that happens with this is that all of a sudden, now that she's left the country, she's you know, discovered all of these supposed contracts or, or deals that seem to implicate actually a wide variety of politicians, including even opposition politicians, but involved them in, in corruptions, uh, particularly with uh, linked to a Brazilian company, our Oldenbrecht uh, Construction Company, which has had many contracts in many countries around South America and which many governments around South America have been sort of linked into sort of corruption cases uh, in, involving this company. Of course, in a context of a media that simply just wants to uh, attack the government, no one asks the question, well, why has she been sitting on this information? How long has this information existed? Why is it only coming to light now? Is, is, is this more politically motivated uh, allegations rather than serious case of that, that should be dealt with in, in the manner it should be if, if there are 
serious allegations to be dealt with. But what we're seeing now is that she'll be very much paraded and we've already seen her move from Colombia to Brazil recently. She was just a few days ago in Brazil in some meeting of attorney generals from the region, again, using that platform. And it's expected she'll ultimately end up uh, in, in the U.S. and, and get an asylum in, in the U.S., from which, of course, she'll continue to attack the government. But really, it, these are issues that should be dealt with in a proper legal manner. Uh, if, if there are cases of corruption and deserves to, to be shown for it, then absolutely uh, anyone uh, who's, who's involved in that uh, should be brought to justice. Uh, but unfortunately, in the politicised uh, situation that Venezuela is in, this is unlikely unlikely to happen, and it's rather to be used as just uh, media attacks on Venezuela and the government. I've been reading an article by Ryan Mallet Outram in Venezuela analysis. He's got the title The Real Price of Trump's Venezuelan Sanctions. He begins by talking about the devastation for the Iraqi people of the US sanctions and he goes on to say this brings us to a new Iraq, modern day Venezuela. Again, Washington has an arch nemesis in sight. The White House is promising to bring democracy and freedom to yet another beleaguered faraway land. Under Obama and now under Trump, we've seen round after round of sanctions building up. In fact, this is the fifth round of sanctions since Trump took office. Until now, the sanctions have been more bark than bite. But it's clear that the Trump administration is now very eager to change that. I think, firstly, it clearly is uh, a ratcheting up of the attacks. Firstly, because even though it's the fifth round of sanctions, it's the first time the sanctions go beyond just targeting specific government or state officials to being broader sanctions targeting any you know specific types of financial transactions with Venezuela and the state. So, so already the, it's a, that's the first indication of the importance of these sanctions. It, it goes to a new level of not just targeting individuals, but targeting the government as a whole. Uh, secondly, it comes in the context where, you know, only a week or two before, Trump himself had said, well, you know, when dealing with Venezuela, we won't rule out even military options. So it's, you know, it's combined with a real ratcheting up of sort of verbal aggression uh, and threats uh, against Venezuela. So there's something that needs to be, you know, not be taken lightly. Certainly the Venezuelan government is not taking it lightly. But I think anyone who's, who genuinely supports democracy uh, and the people of Venezuela, uh, irrespective of what one may think about the government of Maduro, uh, should absolutely be opposed to these sanctions. And in fact, we've already seen those forces or those individuals who have been trying to play a role of trying to bring back a semblance of dialogue and peace to the country. For instance, former Spanish Prime Minister Zapatero, who's been you know, on and off in the country for the last year or so, trying to, and been you know, involved in behind-the-scenes negotiations between the government and opposition and has already come out saying, look, this is not helpful for the current situation in terms of trying to encourage both sides to the table for dialogue. Uh, it's also not helpful because of Venezuela's quite serious uh, economic crisis and what these sanctions could potentially do. They don't do that immediately because of the way they've been worded. Uh, but they certainly do tell the Venezuelan government that a bit not too far down the track are a very important source of what, it, what has currently been a very important source of financing for the government will be cut off. This is in the context we've already seen a number of other access to financing cut off. Firstly, cut off by the National Assembly. Many of the loans, any government, you know, the majority of loans that any government takes out have to be approved by the National Assembly. The National Assembly that refuses to do that, that's one access of financing that government's been blocked from. And secondly, a number of US banks have you know, continually shut down 
Venezuelan government accounts in the country, limiting their ability to do trade, to have access to US dollars. There's the second one. And now with this third one, a blockage on sales of certain bonds and equities and, and things like that, it's really trying to put a stranglehold on the ability of the government to be able to finance a, the, the, a situation where its biggest resource funds, oil, has of course suffered because of the, the drop in oil prices. So the government will have to work out how to deal with this, this situation. As I said, it's not an immediate threat, but it's certainly a very clear single and it's one that the, the government will have to encounter in a few months. How it deals with that, well, that'll be very, very important. The government, for instance, has made extreme, has gone to extreme pains to emphasise that it has been always complying with any of its lines that it's taken out of repaying the debt. Well, perhaps this is a question the government will have to think about the next time around, that rather than prioritising the repayment of the debt, that that money will have to be used to maintain the current social programs um, that, that the government is doing now and, and trying to alleviate the worst aspects of the economic crisis. That will be an important decision, one that, of course, will ensure that that money, government money, is not going to pay loans from banks, but to help the ordinary people of Venezuela. Uh, but it will undoubtedly also trigger off other economic consequences, as then other banks and stuff generally don't respond very kindly to governments who, who don't comply with repayment of loans. But surely other countries have done that when they've had a crisis like this? Different countries have been able to, but in many, in many cases... When the countries have gone into a severe crisis like this, many of the bigger banks and things like the IMF have been more than happy to step in to help. In the current situation, what we have is that most of these institutions uh, either don't want to step in uh, or if they do want to do so with very strict conditions of, of, of what role they would play if they were to step into, into that situation. So this, these are all the, the, the different challenges that the government will have to say. As, as you've said, other governments have defaulted uh, on loans uh, before and have been able to, to move on without too much issue. But the thing is that the, situation, the economic situation in Venezuela is so delicate, it's so, so touch and go, that any of these further sanctions, any of these further cutting off or financing makes every decision a really critical decision in terms of what the government does next in trying to deal with the current economic crisis and, and the very serious impact that that's having on ordinary Venezuelans' uh, living standards, you know, who have seen some of the very important gains that were made over the last you know, essentially two decades being wound back uh, in, the, in the current crisis. Another move to destabilise the government was the attack on the military base on the 6th of August. It was pointed by just about everyone, this is a military uprising, but no, it wasn't a military uprising at all, was it? Well, that's right. Again, another example of just how the media tries to present a quite a distorted picture of what's happening in Venezuela. So this... This attack on a military base that occurred in, in Valencia was, was presented as some, as some internal rumblings in the military, uh, you know, and as a potential signal point that, you know, perhaps the, the regime, you know, as, as the media likes to call it, uh, was, was crumbling. The real reality was that it was largely based uh, of civilians or, or deserters, ex-military people who had left the military, headed by a captain of the National Guard who had been basically on the run for the last two, three years because of his involvement in, in previous coup attempts. Uh, they have dressed themselves up in uniforms and, and, and attacked a base, but it's not really in a, sort of an inside job, as, uh, to, to use a sort of turn of phrase, uh, in terms of what, what occurred on there. What was really, I think, behind that, though, was one was, well, certainly to be able to create that image internationally, that that, that was what was occurring. And in particular, to sort of send a message to those that are, you know, particularly keen on the road that the opposition has taken, which is to go to elections, those that think, no, we've, we've still got to continue the all-out fight uh, against the, the, the government. 
I think that this was a symbolic action that tried to sort of show to people, well, no, there is still still another alternative. Uh, there is still a, a, a military, a violent road that we could undertake uh, in order to bring down the government. But what we've seen is, you know, since that action, there's been no other uh, evidence of any, any kind of military assault, military attack, military uh, descent on that level. And, of course, it, it's sort of you know, now not mentioned anymore in, in the media about what's, what's happened subsequently to that, in particularly the fact that the captain involved in that uh, attack has been captured and, you know, of course, will now face trial for his role in, in, in that was essentially a, a terrorist attack. Uh, in the, had it certainly occurred in any other country, would have been deemed as that. Um, but in, in Venezuela, it was instead portrayed as some kind of a potential patriotic uprising within the military. Finally, Fred, there is some disquiet about the fact that left-leaning journalists, activists, even governments are not putting their full support behind Venezuela as they struggle against the powers of neoliberalism? I think what, what, what is seen is that the, the real media campaign, the demonisation campaign of Venezuela uh, has been quite effective in at least neutering or you know making people think twice before standing up and speaking out about Venezuela, particularly because many feel that oh, if, I, if to, to defend Venezuela means I have to defend absolutely everything. And then, you know, in the context of all of these allegations, when you throw enough, you know, as they say, you throw enough mud, surely some of it sticks. You know, people start to think, well, surely some of what the media is saying about Venezuela is true. The starting point has to be that one can have a million and one criticisms of the Maduro government. And you only have to go to Venezuela to see that some of the most critical people in Venezuela are also the ones that are the most diehard supporters of the political process in Venezuela, but they will spend hours upon hours telling you about everything they think that is wrong uh, with the current direction that the, the, the government is, is taking the country. But it's a very simple question of understanding that what we have in Venezuela is a democratically elected president, a president whose term ends next year, where there will be elections next year, and where those who want to remove him via the constitution, via democratic means, will be able to do so next year. But it's a government that today is facing clearly a righteous offensive who are not afraid to use whatever means possible, uh, including military options, including you know, foreign intervention, military foreign intervention, uh, in order to get rid of this government and impose its own regime, which will no doubt be a regime of terror, which will no doubt be a regime that will make the numbers of political deaths today you know, pale into insignificance with the kind of repression that will be carried out in order to stop... Uh, any sort of uh, dissidence towards this sort of transitional government. And, of course, it's a, a, a government that will come into power, if it does come into power by this means, which will be ignored by the media. The media will just turn around and say that everything's fixed in Venezuela and no need to pay any more attention. I think in that context, it's a very simple thing for the left to say, no, look, we do not support rightist attempts to overthrow democratic governments. We can then debate... Other questions about, you know, the corruption, uh, about the, you know, who's responsible for the economic crisis, how could these, you know, be, be resolved. But if we can't, you know, our starting point has to be we've got to have a respect for Venezuela's national sovereignty. We've got to have a respect for its democratic structures. Uh, and we've got to make sure that our governments are not worsening the situation. And I think in that context, the U.S. sanctions definitely do do that uh, and that's something that even non-government supporters in Venezuela or people people from outside Venezuela have been looking to try to mediate in, in the situation and have said so I think you know, these are the kind of things that really we should be expressing and yet we, we don't hear enough progressive voices coming out uh, condemning uh, the talk of military threat by Trump, the talk of 
or the actions of, of imposing sanctions on, on Venezuela. And how to remedy that? Oh, well, look, I, I think information, obviously a big part of it is, as I said, I, I think a lot of it has to do, not necessarily because people, uh, you know, believe everything they read in the media. I think generally people nowadays are pretty sceptical about anything they read in the media about about any any situation. But if you don't have counter-information, it just becomes a lot harder to speak out. So I think, obviously, you know, the kind of work that, that 3CR does in general and, and specifically about getting the alternative voice of, of Venezuela is really important. But also maintaining a street presence. We know we, we've got it as small as they may be, but having public forums, having protests is, is also an important aspect of sending a, a, a symbol, a signal to others that, that they're not alone. Uh, and that's an important signal, not just to progressives here in Australia who can feel moralised or will feel empowered by the fact that they see others that, that share a similar opinion to them and they may not have realised that there were others who think alike. But it's also very important for people in Venezuela and them knowing that all around the world. Uh, there are people, you know, also engaged in this struggle and also helping to, to defend democracy in Venezuela. And thanks to Fred Fuentes from Sydney talking about Venezuela. He's an author, activist, journalist. He can do it all. Fred Fuentes. And let's hear a couple of announcements and then a bit of music and then it's time for Done by Law. Come on. Come in and hear the best live pop music from around town. It's your chance to tune in, so come on, come in. Live on Thursdays, 3pm, 3CR, 8.55am. United Struggle Project presents a preview of The Change, revolutionary hip-hop theatre coming at you. Showcasing artists from the project, from the West Papua Black Orchid String Band, Black Sisters, Lady Lash, Combat Wombat, Race Rage, Soma, Vocal Boogie, Viv and Robbie and a load of other amazing talent and yummy West Papuan food. $5 suggested donation, no one turned away. At The Factory in Richmond on the 2nd of September, 6pm. Hey all you mob. Get on down to the factory and be a part of the change. As I said, that's all for me for today. It is a little bit early, but that's all. I will be back next Tuesday at four o'clock. And stay tuned for Done By Law here very soon. But let's go out with a little music to finish the program. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.